This is the future. And humanity is all but extinct. First they start skipping prescribed drug dosages. Then they begin touching. I volunteer as tribute! You can stop this. You can change things. I know that there's something more. Then we've only got one choice. We fight. Fight the future with Dan and Paul. Welcome to Fight the Future with Dan and Paul. And I'm Dan. I'm Paul. And this is the podcast where we review young adult dystopias. That is, we review the dystopias. And not the media themselves. Mm-hmm. And not the young adults either. No. They're fine. You know, they're doing it for themselves. Today we're going to talk about A Boy and His Dog, the 1975 movie that's based on a 1969 Harlan Ellison short story. And uh, we, we're having some problems with this podcast. Yeah. This episode. I mean, we were talking about whether we should even do this one. I, I read the story a long time ago, and I said to Paul... I have some reservations about this movie because I remember that there's a rape in it mm. that is that is disturbing. Uh, yeah, it that was turns out that yeah, that's that's really a large portion of the movie is just kind of the that's that's just the entirety of the society in which they now live. Yes, so this is the first episode we've had to do that not only has spoiler warnings but also a trigger warning Mm -hmm. uh, that that there's a lot of really awful things that will probably come up in this uh and we'll try to avoid saying the word rape too many times (laughs) but it is gonna happen yes so i want to read out the email that paul sent to me right after watching the movie (laughs) okay that movie was insane paul does not use caps locks very much in his emails how did this get made would have a field day with it it's another wonderful podcast if you don't know it by the way it will certainly give us some stuff to talk about although it is going to be tough to treat it with any kind of seriousness it ends with the hero killing his love interest and feeding her to his dog what the fuck also all in caps so i think we're going to just run through the plot summary like usual and then we're going to talk about those what the fuck moments mm-hmm. at the end and then our usual other segments we talked about in some of the, the previous podcasts about some some of the appeal of young adult dystopias young adult dystopias tend to be more kind of optimistic and uh-huh. uh, sort of have a sense of hope i mean hope for the future is a, a segment in our podcast but they, they do have this sort of idea that that you know it's sort of the beginning of a change or something like that. This is not one of those. This, right. This movie and the, the dystopia that it depicts is not an optimistic one. Yeah, so this is what's something that's kind of special about it and it kind of merits our attention, I would say. And it is absolutely an influence on a lot of these very, very bleak wasteland-type dystopias. Yeah, Mad Max um, came out four years after this movie. There you go. The, the original Mad Max. And I mean, clearly, uh, there's influence there. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I heard that the director said something about that, George Miller. Oh, yeah. He said that Road Warrior was very, very much influenced by this. 
um, the the video games Fallout. The director of that is uh, has referenced um, Boy and His Dog extensively, especially all the stuff with the you know the people living down in the in the down under and all that kind of stuff. Um, right, the bunkers, which you referenced in our City of Ember episode. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, it's as um, say what you will, you know, about this this movie, and I'm sure we will. Um, but <laughs> there's uh, no getting around the fact that it, it the it was massively influential, and I mean, it won actually quite a few awards. Yeah. Both the original short story that it was based on, and this movie itself, um, won a bunch of awards too. So. Yep. But uh, don't get us wrong. You should not watch this movie. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. All right, let's get started. All right. The story. It starts off with uh, our hero, Vic, traveling along with his telepathic dog companion, Blood, who persists in calling him Albert, just to annoy him, apparently. So it's the year 2024. And in fact, my um, Italian edition is called Apocalisse Venti... Ventiquattro. Ah, nice. Um, that's the Italian title. Although I like the other Italian title, by the way, which is called Un ragazzo e suo cane, due amici inseparabili. Which means uh, a boy and his dog, two inseparable friends. <laughs> ah. It's a kind of dusty wasteland that they live in. Everybody just is wearing rags. Mm-hmm. There's just shacks around. It's apparently the city of Phoenix that's been absolutely just reduced to dust. He and Blood are sort of scrounging for food constantly. Yeah, just canned food wherever they can find it. He's also always bugging Blood uh, to help him to find a woman. Yeah, because Blood is sort of this telepathic dog um, who not only can talk to him, uh, but uh, can sort of sense both people and uh, whether there's a woman nearby and so as they're they're going along and they encounter or they they see sort of off in the distance this sort of uh, raiding party who are scrounging um, food from a old bunker, uh, scrounging a bunch of cans of food. Normally they would just wait for them to leave, but Vic decides to uh, run in and grab a bag of food and run away with these guys, sort of chasing after him and shooting their guns and stuff. So he successfully gets this big bag of food and he and Blood are, are sort of living the high life. Yeah, they decide to go and see a movie, which they can pay for with canned goods. Yeah. They go to watch a, what turns out to be sort of an old-timey stag film on a screen in this sh- shanty town. Yeah, yeah. And while they're there, Blood goes, hey, wait a minute. I think that there's a woman here because Blood has this woman radar. Vic looks around a little bit and... Bloodsword describes her and, and uh, he catches up with her or, or follows her as she leaves this uh, cinema. Yeah, and he follows her to a kind of an underground stockpile area. He watches her undress and he barges in and holds her up at gunpoint. He's planning to rape her. Right. He, she sort of disarms him a little bit. Like she sort of starts asking him like what his name is and tells him her name and he gets a little bit I feel like he gets a little bit like flustered yeah for a moment we see that he's really quite young although in fact he's yeah he's played by Don Johnson who's 26 when this movie was shot he's supposed to be 18 I think. Yeah. yeah 
I think it would be a little less upsetting if he was actually a teenager hmm. um, rather than a 26-year-old man. But anyway, and just at that moment, another group of raiders starts arriving. Uh, Blood sort of gives him a warning that, hey, hey, we got to go. Uh, and Blood encourages him to just sort of throw this woman to the dogs uh, and run out the back door. But uh, he decides to instead stay and fight them off. There's a fight between them. He manages to scare them off by imitating the sound of this screamer, which is a kind of a mutant that exists in this world that is very dangerous. Uh, so they have the bunker to themselves. Right. In the fight, though, uh, Blood is wounded by uh, one of the dogs that is that's sort of another dog that comes in with the raiders. And then I believe at that point a real screamer comes in, which we don't see. It's just like a glow off the side of the screen. But it chases... Vic and the woman, whose name is Quilla June Holmes, into this boiler room that Blood has found. And they hold up there for uh, overnight, I guess. And during that time, Quilla June and uh, Vic actually have sex for real, or have voluntary sex, and they start becoming actually quite close. And then, even though Blood keeps warning him about her and grumbling... But in fact, she bonks him on the head with a flashlight, knocks him out. But uh, Vic and Blood find a key card that they assume fell out of her pocket and surmise that it's the entrance to what's called a down under, which is like an underground vault that she's from. Blood says, you know, we should ignore it or whatever. But Vic really wants to chase her down. And so they go to the entrance to this vault. Which is just a door kind of in this featureless desert that he uses the key card to go inside. Blood can't come along with him. No. And they have a kind of a very emotional parting of ways there at the, at the door. And he goes, down, uh, he goes down into this vault. And inside the vault, it turns out to be this sort of strange, almost kind of idyllic small town. Un- completely unlike what it is on the surface. Yeah, so there's a a sky, artificial sky, and grass and trees in this bunker. Yeah. Which is enormous, and a whole little city. And he's captured, but but they actually, you know, treat him relatively well. They uh, bathe him and give him new clothes. And then he's brought before the elders of this town. They have a a ruling triumvirate called the Committee, one of which is played by Jason Robards, and they pass judgment on everybody, including sending people to the farm, which it's pretty obvious is just killing them. But then they have him up in front of the tribunal, and they say, we're all infertile because of living underground too long. We need you to inseminate our women, which at first sounds like a really great deal to him. Right, and it turns out that Quilla June was actually sent, uh, explicitly sent up to the surface to lure him down there. That's right. And so, yeah, he's very enthusiastic about this whole process until he realizes that what's actually going to happen is he's strapped down to a table and is kind of milked through uh, with electrodes. Mm-hmm. And there's a long line of brides, all the young women in the community coming to receive a little vial from him is in a weird ritualistic thing. But one of the brides is Quilla, 
and she's hidden a crowbar in her bouquet of flowers. So she's able to knock out the guards and free him. And so she frees him with the idea that he's going to uh, kill the members of this committee uh, so that they can sort of take over uh, this town and be happy down underground. But Vic will not have any. Vic is, just wants to get out of this whole place. And um, they observe this kind of henchman, Henry, who dresses in like jean overalls, crushing the heads of some of the rebels. And then they're spotted and he runs after them. Vic has picked up the guns that he was, that were taken from him when he was first captured. And he now, he unloads like his entire uh, uh, supply of ammunition into Henry. And finally, Henry goes down and is revealed to be a robot. Uh, mm-hmm. This freaky robot henchman. And they say, we're going to just send another Henry out of the warehouse after them. Yeah. But they manage to make their escape and they find a very badly wounded blood still waiting outside for him. Yeah. And starving. Yeah. So, yeah, blood is starving and wounded and informs him that the nearby settlement, like where they went to watch the movie and everything, has actually been the people who he stole the food from at the very beginning of the movie have gone through this local this nearby community so it's no longer safe there so they can't go back there to get food for blood and they don't know where else they're going to get food so uh vic decides to kill quilla june uh and feed her to his dog Mm -hmm. and then the last shot of the movie we don't actually see that on screen no um but it's clear and the last shot of the film is them walking off together and joking around as they walk off towards the horizon, possibly looking for this over-the-hill place that Blood was discussing, a possibly hopeful place to go. What the fuck? Okay, what the fuck? <laughs> what the very much fuck? So this is a new segment uh, that we Special are to this particular doing movie. Doing just for this movie. Uh, you have no idea how difficult... Uh, it was to do that plot summary without just stopping to say what the fuck every like 10 seconds. That was our second take that you probably heard there. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Um, bec- oh, dear God, this movie. Um, right. Maybe you can start by by reminding us of the last line of the movie. Right. Which is how we... It's made perfectly ambiguous that he's fed Quilla June Holmes to the... And brace yourself. This is... An infamous line for good reason. Yeah, so the final line of the movie is Blood, uh, telepathically talking to Vic, goes, Well, I'd say she had marvelous judgment, Albert, she calls Vic, if not particularly good taste. And he kind of walk oh, off into the sunset. God, <laughs> Jesus Christ. So what the fuck? What's interesting, actually, though, um, is that that line is different from the short story that this is based on by Harlan Ellison. And Harlan Ellison actually really objected to that last line. Uh, but, but I mean, I've heard that. Like, I read that, too. But it's like, it doesn't really change the ending. No, it's the no, same no. Ending it's the, both. No, the, the, it's ending, the pun the that he objects to. Change. Yeah. He was bothered by the pun. The ending of the novel, of, of, the, of the short story, is Vic sort of doing voiceover, Quilla goes, you know, do you know what love is? Because she, she's sort of trying, I guess she's trying to like manipulate him because she loves him. I love you. You know what love is? And then he says, you know what love is? Sure, I know. 
a boy loves his dog. Yeah, so it's a little more complicated, I guess, than just the haha, we just ate the woman. But it's, but still, it's still that that happened. Bitches, man. <laughs> bitches. Yes. Uh, I saw when it was like the message of the film is bros before hoes or mutts before sluts. <laughs> It's like, so, yeah, I mean, the entirety of the movie and all of Vic's motivations throughout the vast majority of the movie is that he wants to find uh, a woman to rape. Yeah, that's like the whole first 20 minutes is him constantly saying, hey, find me a woman. Find me a woman. When they're in this sort of boiler, they're hiding out from the screamer thing or whatever, and Quilla, you know, starts to voluntarily won't have sex with him starts to actually initiate having sex with him he actually seems like taken aback like sure unprepared like this is is something that he has never actually experienced before right so yeah this is this little bit of a speed bump here and it's not i mean it's not just that the protagonist is this type of person but also that uh, I should just say he is a serial rapist, mm. um, but is a. Uh, it's that it's so lightheartedly presented. Like the opening theme song is like a a montage of him and his faithful dog, like, just like cavorting around. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right, and right. Five seconds after that line, the line about she had bad taste. The theme song starts right. about a boy and his dog. A boy and his dog. <laughs> they can go fishing. Actual line about fishing. Ah, Jesus. Yeah, so... Like, they, they know they're being ironic, but they don't really get how insane that is. And we're, it's not just that Vic is a terrible person. Obviously, he is. But it's just, that's everybody. Like... Yeah. You know, I think about, you know, there's talk of... In sort of our, our modern society talk about rape culture or whatever and this is definitely that <laughs> yeah this is rape planet everything and then and you know when he goes down into the uh into the vault then he gets raped over and over again too that's just how everything is done in this world yeah and and the women in that world their reproduction is completely controlled as well like their only value is as bearing children and yet yeah and yet the girl is the enemy as well, somehow, confusingly. But let I want to talk about that boiler room scene because this is a trope that you may not be that familiar with, Paul, but is actually was very popular, you know, 40, 50 years ago when this film was made, which is the um, the sexual assault that turns into, like, fun. Mm. Like uh, where the, the woman kind of really gets into it partway through. Right, that it was just sort of playing hard to get or something. Yeah, or that yeah, she changes her mind somehow, and it's suddenly awesome. This was very popular at a certain era, uh, and yeah, it's just crazy. It looks crazy now. Like nothing she does makes any sense in this movie. Like, why does she undress in this bunker, which is not actually protected? It has no door, and it's not even. Like, and, it, and it's like the. It seems to be like the the base of a different group of raiders who just happened to be gone at that time yeah it's clearly a dangerous place you know we do find out that she's sort of explicitly being sent out there to lure him down into the vault but 
there's got to be better ways of doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some like it's the most dangerous possible way. Like she's really surrounded by dangerous people, and like, yeah. Why can't she lure him in there, like from the door? Like just say, "Hey, yo, come on in, come in here." <laughs> yeah, like that would have worked with him. <laughs> yeah, he is very receptive. Why doesn't she say, hey, I know a place where we can have lots of sex. Come on with me. And let's talk about the Topeka, which is the Down Under Society. Yeah. Because we, we did not really touch on how crazy this portrayal is. Yeah. At first, you think it's 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 this, like, bizarre kind of, I don't know, Pleasantville. I don't know. For some reason, it reminded me of, like, the music man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like turn-of-the-century America. Yeah. Uh, Lots you know, there's, of like, like I said, there's a barbershop quartet singing. And a marching band playing at the same time, yeah. which is rather insane making. Uh, but then, like, you notice everyone is wearing white face for no reason. Yes. It is never yes. addressed. It's never talked about. But it's Sort of clown makeup almost. Yeah. Like, they like, have a little bit of rouge on the cheeks. I almost thought that that was actually just, like, terrible makeup, that they were trying to make them all look pale because they're underground. <laughs> Really? You thought that? For a sec, I did. I was like, no, okay. that can't actually be what's going on, right? <laughs> they have loudspeakers everywhere saying, well, it was hard for me to understand in Italian, but mm. they were saying sort of homilies, like little homie advice and recipes. Yeah. For pie. It was a little bit like The Giver, actually, with the like loudspeakers just announcing things at random intervals. Just like 24 hours a day, apparently. And then the tribunal is these three old people. Yeah. Including Jason Robards, who just seem to be executing people regularly. Yeah. You would think that a place like that, where clearly they're concerned about their population growth, they wouldn't just execute people willy-nilly like that. Also, something else that they do in the tribunal, Vic has a conversation telepathically with another dog, a little terrier, and they put it on trial and interrogate it. Yeah. And they're not telepathic. And so they're literally interrogating this dog just the way we would interrogate a dog in the current world. As in, you (laughs) yell at the dog and the dog says nothing. (laughs) Yeah. And then they decide to... Send it to the farm, probably? I think so. Because it's not cooperative. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's insubordinate. I mean, clearly they were, you know, amping up stuff and trying to sort of commentate on things and stuff. But... The amount to which it was amped up now appears totally insane, as opposed to what it was supposed to be, which is slightly insane. (laughs) You mean amped up like the Topeka Society? Yeah, the above ground society as well. Right. I feel like it was intended to be kind of rough and tumble people, you know, men being men, yada, yada, yada. But just because of the perceptions of the people who were making the film ended up being this just horrible (laughs) just taking everything as far past what is actually appropriate as possible right so it's kind of like a hyper 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 version of like a men's work camp or something where where there really are literally no women around like the first female actress you see on screen who's not uh murdered is about the 40 minute mark i would say right it's it is quilla june right right or maybe 20 minutes, but yeah, it felt like longer. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of lot of chatter between the guy and his dog. 
I was actually thinking about that, like sort of after the movie was done, that this movie uh, would be a movie that they would love to show in the movie theater in the movie. Yeah, and in fact, my DVD transfer was about the same level of quality as the <laughs> scratchy print. Like it is, it does have this. What it connects with are exploitation films from the seventies. Oh yeah, I mean it's like black exploitation films. This and is probably many of those are the at least as horrible. Taken to the furthest degree. Like the gender politics in those movies is just as horrible. I mean, it is the seventies. Like the world has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, thank God. I wanted to talk about this essay I found by Joanna Russ about this movie. She watched it when it came out and wrote this essay. So this was written at the time? Yes. So just to show you that, I mean, people realized that it was horrible, but they were swimming against the stream at the time. So Joanna Russ is a famous science fiction writer who wrote books like The Female Man and other things that are very explicitly feminist often. Mm. Uh, She said... Sending a woman to see a boy and his dog is like sending a Jew to a movie that glorifies Dachau. <laughs> uh, you need not be a feminist to loathe this film. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it's actually a brilliant essay that really deconstructs how misogynist this film is. Like, the woman is just this evil lure, like Eve in the garden. The depiction of the guy and, and you know, all the various raiders and the the uh, miscreants uh, uh, in the above world uh, is also horrible, right? Like the filmmakers really think that this is what men would do given the those circumstances. Like that is equally yeah. horrible <laughs> and equally offensive. As, of all the stories to be faithfully adapted. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, was thinking about how you would remake it now and you could do it like, you know, how they updated the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland? Instead of just chasing after the women, the women were now carrying plates of food, so the men were chasing after the food. So it's all okay now. Yeah, that's how I remake this film. <laughs> the just the, the women are the people has sausages who have, draped around her. She has all the canned food. <laughs> yeah, in her pants. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, but I mean the theme of it is that the above world is actually kind of better in, in some ways than, than the horrible civilization that this evil woman is trying to lure him into. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that's I guess that's what is intended. I mean, that doesn't, like, I mean, as a watcher now, that certainly isn't what, uh, you know, what, like, like, Vic actually says at one point, you know, it's like, the dirtiness up there makes me feel cleaner than clean down here or something like that. He's got some stupid line about how he felt cleaner up there in the dirt than down here, uh, you know, because everybody's all lying or whatever in yeah. in the vault. Vic is really stupid and a terrible, terrible person. And there's no reason to think that he is actually somebody who you should be rooting for at all. Yeah, like what makes him the hero? In my mind, he grows up to be Immortan Joe. Yeah, yeah. Or Lord Humongous, possibly, too. <laughs> Maybe. Okay, have we got it out of our system? Is there anything else you wanted to say? Uh, I'm sure more stuff will come up. Plausibility. So let's talk a little bit about how this world came about and 
well, I mean, there's not much to say about how it maintains itself. It's it, it's falling apart. It doesn't, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, th- this is actually the sort of more interesting part of the whole, of the thing. It talk- talks about at the beginning that this is after World War Four, right? So this mm-hmm. is not messing around. We're jumping all the way past World War Three to World War Four. So, but in the movie, it implies that the Cold War is the World War Three, which, by the way, was still going on when this movie was made, of course. Yeah, uh, or, it says, or the Cold War was not as cold, obviously, as it actually was. But it says that World War Four lasted five days in 2007, and it was just five days because it was a bunch of nuclear missiles being launched. Yeah, it just took basically as long as it took all the missiles to get set up and launched. And yeah. everything... I mean, humanity is really on its last legs in this. Like, if you think Road Warrior is, is grim, this is much more so. Yeah, at least the people uh, uh, on the surface, Vic and, and all the other raiders and stuff, they're all eating canned food, right? So they're all eating leftovers. Nobody's actually, they're all just on borrowed time. Nobody's There's actually some making reference to stuff. Nothing being able to grow. Yeah. Was Vic actually born after World War Four? Yeah. I think he was like two or three when it happened. Yeah. But he doesn't remember the world before. Now, on the other hand, like, what about blood? Is blood more than 18 years old? Uh, isn't that kind of old for a dog? Maybe the stuff he talked about isn't firsthand. Maybe you heard it from other dogs. <laughs> There's like a network of factual information about, like, who is the president. So, I don't know. Maybe his telepathic powers give him longevity as well. The telepathic thing is interesting because it's just kind of thrown into the mix. Right, yeah. And it's not really talked about that much. But, you know, it's not that uncommon in science fiction of that era that they would just, like, put in telepathy or something. Like, yeah, sure, why not? And then we also have mutants in the mix. Right. Which are not, uh, yeah, for budgetary reasons, presumably, are not shown on screen but are sort of glowy. Yeah, yeah. Given the starting circumstances of... World War Three and World War Four, and nuclear war devastating everything, then uh, the uh, the whole post-apocalyptic wasteland, Mad Max, Fallout, whatever. I call it a everything is just dirt future. Yeah, yeah. Like it also includes the road. Uh, a lot of zombie apocalypses turn out that way. Right, right. Like where there's absolutely just the merest shreds of civilization. Yeah, um, and, and there's a lot of dust around. Resident Evil, um, the third one, I think. Anytime you have people wearing goggles and like cloth around their, yeah, mouths. yeah. Well, so that's actually an interesting thing about this movie. Like, is this where that all came from? I think to some degree it really did. Like the uh, the not, not all of it. I mean, there's post-apocalyptic stuff going back, but some of it. But in terms of, imagery. I mean, in terms of the visual style. Like the the yeah. the sort of cloth wrapped around and the goggles and the, I mean it's a cool looking film I have to say, um, and the sort of you know stuff cobbled together, from somewhat recognizable present day items or present day for 1975. Yeah, yeah, like the car that um, Fellini has, that's all put together. Well, it's not a car as you pointed out; it's dragged by slaves. <laughs> Unlike a Mad Max, we don't have a bunch of petroleum left over. Yeah. In fact, there I, I wrote in my notes that it's like it's Mad Max without cars. Like everyone seems to just kind of walk around. <laughs> right. If, if everyone had to walk. Yeah. This is what it would be. <laughs> Mad Max, <laughs> less impressive. Than everyone less, less fun. Yeah. yeah. 
um, and probably a little more plausible, to be honest. Mm. I mean, when civilization breaks down, women are more at risk. That's just a fact. So it's not a fact I really want to be a part of my fiction necessarily in a big way. Uh, certainly not in a lighthearted, fun way. In the short story, it there's this big war that happened. The soldiers all went off to war, and then the nukes hit and blew up every all the women and children that were staying at home. Oh, is okay. basically what happened. Okay, well that changes the premise a little bit. Then that would mean that it's a world where there are explicitly fewer women, rather than it's not one that, they're, that, they're, that it used to be equal are and, being murdered and they're all just the time. being murdered and raped so much that they've run out as a resource <laughs> good okay let's talk about the down under then a little bit too again it seems to be dying like i don't know how isn't it only 18 years since the apocalypse how did it get so weird in that time uh, yeah i don't i i mean it's <laughs> it is a definitely there's something very wrong uh with the down under stuff it's all the weird details that they put in the movie, like the everyone wearing white face. Um, there's trees in there, and it's there's dark grass. all the time. Is it? Yeah. It doesn't work out with it, the apocalypse only being 18 years ago. Was there? They must have. Yeah. They must have been down there before somehow. So in the in the short story, they they escape back up to the surface. The two of them, um, after killing a bunch of people in the town. So none of the, the, the milking thing, the sending people to the farm thing, that's not in there at all. Why do they need to escape if it's not an oppressive society? Well, it's, Are they just nice people? It's oppressively... It's clear that there's a clear implication that it is very, quite uh, repressive. Uh, okay, but it seems like they could actually make it, maybe, these people. Like it could maintain itself. Oh, yeah, yeah. That they're nice people are kind of bound together by religious conservatism. Yeah, I don't know how, if they're like really nice, but they do seem to be... They're not these maniacs like in the film. Yeah, they don't seem to be totally insane. Right. Okay. And they're not all wearing white face. I do (laughs) not know where that comes from. And there are no marching bands mentioned. No, no, they do mention an Oompa band, actually. (laughs) No, uh, no, um... Barbershop Quartet, though. Okay, because that's one step too far. Yeah. Barbershop Quartet. Scariness. Terrifying. <laughs> yeah, this is this is the most scary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, death rattles of the human race. Right. That's about as bad as it gets. Yeah, this is, this is one of those situations where I'm like, ah, that's fine. You guys can continue with the world. I'll just have worked out so that I died in the nuclear explosions that happened earlier. I don't need to continue uh-huh. on in this world. <laughs> so this is your you're folding in here. How would I do? Yeah. How? You would be incinerated by nuclear missiles. Yeah, yeah. And if there weren't any right. nuclear missiles handy, I would find something to incinerate You'd myself. Find your own with. nuclear missile and throw yourself on it. Yeah. I feel that way about a lot of zombie apocalypses too. I think that the People lose sight of how much more relaxing it would be to just get bitten by a zombie. <laughs> and then you're a zombie. You, you don't just have to like worry about stuff. Jump off the roof of the mall, crowd surf on the zombies. Yeah. I mean, sure, there's a little bit of unpleasantness at the, right at the very beginning, but over the long term, 
So if the two of us are stranded in an apocalypse, I should not look to you as my moral support uh, to keep me going in like the hard times. No. I mean, I guess the un- you could sort of survive in the underground thing, but it would be pretty terrible. Seems stuffy. The only way that this is worse than what I used to think was the worst possible dystopia, which was the road. Mm. I was like, well, at least there's not cannibalism. Then I was like, wait, no. And I remembered. Uh, So, yeah. All right. That's all we need to say, basically. Hope for the future. Also none. Terrifying. All right, done. Actually, just 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 quickly mention. So um, Harlan Ellison has since expanded the story with a graphic novel called Vic and Blood. It's Blood and Vic are, are, are hanging out together. Again, Blood is back on his feet or whatever. But Vic is uh, having guilt-ridden hallucinations because of his uh, conscience after killing Quilla. He ends up getting separated from Blood and captured by a giant mutated spider. Okay. He's cocooned, poisoned by venom, and beyond hope of saving. And he accepts his fate and blood is left to fend for himself. It's kind of a Sounds pointless. Kind of a downer. Yeah. Harlan Ellison apparently has has given the reason that he basically wanted to stop fans requesting more stories from those two characters. <laughs> so he just made it a really down, kind of depressing story <laughs> with a really crap. Okay, they're dead now. Yeah, they're dead now. How do you like that? It's dead. He got eaten by a giant spider. The end. <laughs> how would they do? In my how would I do... I'm imagining myself as one of the wives in this world, one of the brides in the long lineup, having absolutely no autonomy, having no control, and only being valued for my fertility. And what's happened is that Quilla has taken Vic to be her savior, but her intentions are also poisoned. So I've watched her make this attempted rebellion that's just completely crushed, and yet leaving me there probably conditions get even worse. More people are getting killed. The society is just tearing itself apart. And meanwhile, I'm just being used as, like, currency, essentially, to further the race. But one day, the lieutenant of the leader is sent on a special above-ground mission. And the lieutenant is Imperator Furiosa. Uh-oh. And so she manages to hide me away Inside, what? there's no cars. Let me see. How's this going to work? Help me, Paul. In her backpack. In her backpack. Okay, <laughs> in, in some luggage. Yeah, in one of those big rolly suitcases. In a big rolly suitcase that is necessary for scavenging on the surface. And as they're watching, I take a left turn. She takes a left turn, taking me with her. Just then, all of the citizens of Topeka and their white face burst out of this above-ground shelter and start chasing us. So again, it's like Road Warrior, but with no cars. Right. So it's just running. <laughs> but I have guns. So this is the thing. Like, Quilla has a gun. Why does she need Vic? This is what Joanna Russ pointed out. Yeah, yeah. It's She's, like, really, really big on getting Vic to kill all these people when she not only has a gun, but has shown that she can clearly use it. Exactly. But in any case, me and... 
the rest of the brides are on the run, all still in our wedding dresses, just as Quilla is in the end. But this time we've got guns, we're ready to attack. They can send an army of Henrys, and we just short them out one by one. Speeding off across the desert on our feet, I guess. Bicycles, maybe? Bicycles, yes, that's right. We're going to use bicycles. <laughs> maybe petty farthings. <laughs> okay, that's getting too silly. Stop trying to hijack it, okay? Right, boiling out across the landscape, all these white-faced people blinded by the sun, but we've been training for this. We're ready to go. And we're ready to make a run to the land over the hill. Who knows what we'll find there? But we know that we'll stick together as a pack. And we don't need Vic. We don't need the others. Because Imperator Furiosa can basically kill anybody. Um, so that's my role in this world. That I would form a feminine alliance that would basically become the most fearsome Amazons that this post-apocalyptic world has ever seen. And we'll cut our own throats before we'll let ourselves be captured by anybody ever again. Nice. Yeah. So basically, I'm being inspired by the contrast between this movie and Mad Max Fury Road, obviously. Mm -hmm. Like, it's exactly 40 years later, and the world has changed a lot. And mass entertainment has changed a lot. Like, the, the people who made this movie could not imagine a woman taking, like, a, a proactive role in her own safety, essentially. Joanna Russ writes about this, and she writes about how women are, like, scapegoated as the, the kind of corrupting force. This is what she writes. So the war between fathers and sons is as chronic a conflict in patriarchy as a war between classes, though not nearly as revolutionary in its potential. In both conflicts, women are useful scapegoats, blamable and punishable for everything. After all, son will eventually make it to the state of father, will have his own daughter slash wife he can own, quote-unquote, protect from other fathers, a daughter he can give to another son as payment for containing the status quo. Son can be counted on to punish daughter if daughter gets out of hand. Thus, a real alliance between daughter and son is made eternally impossible. And luckily so, for such an alliance would be almost as dangerous for patriarchy as one between daughter and mother. That's Mad Max Fury Road she's describing. The daughter is Furiosa, and the son is Mad Max, and they make an alliance. They actually help each other. And then the daughters and the mothers, the land of many mothers and the, uh, the wives. <laughs> so that, okay. I was so excited to read that. Like, I wish Joanna Russ could have seen this movie. She loves science fiction, obviously, <laughs> and she imagined it 40 years ago. Hmm. So I just wanted to get that off my chest. Okay. <laughs> Given my my background and stuff, I find the whole all you know the guys running the the movie theater to be really interesting. Mm. Um, and they and again in, in the in the short story, I, they actually talk about that where there's actually this sort of almost formal ceasefire. It's sort of a known thing that the theater is off limits for fighting. Okay. So everybody likes movies. Yeah, the idea that 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 they're providing that the theater in this post-apocalyptic wasteland where everyone is scrabbling to survive, the theater is actually providing a useful service still. The need for sort of escapism is just as present as it was, well, if not more so. Yeah, like the end of Sullivan's Travels. Yeah. Yeah. So you specifically imagine yourself as like owning and running this movie theater. Well, I don't know about I I probably I, I was thinking about like you know, like being, you know, the projectionist or something, right? Uh -huh, like you're, uh -huh. So you're there and like your job is to, of course, there aren't new films being made, 
Um, but you can you could trade for them. Yeah. You so your job scrounge. is you're, you're sort of half the actual like technical being a projectionist, but you're also sort of an archivist, right? You're you're looking for films whenever you know whenever a new guy comes through town, and you're protecting the films too. Maybe sometimes it turns into a fight. Right. And and of course, you know, uh, every time you and how how celluloid works is you know it degrades over time and every time you especially in a world with so much sand yeah and every time you show it it there's chances of the film breaking and things degrading uh and so uh it is actually something that is you know is not something that just anybody can do and can keep you alive the skill yeah yeah it can keep you alive in a skill that isn't you know how well you can shoot guns or dig holes or whatever mm-hmm it's like everyone is competing along this axis of who can be the most macho, who can claim the most property or whatever. And the guys running the movie theater are, are just like, you know what? You guys are real scary with your guns and all your fancy stuff. That's cool. We're here running this movie theater. If you want to come watch a movie, then, you know, drop us a couple of cans of food and we can we can set that up. Yeah, this is a place where... There actually is less violence where there's where there's a truce mm. and there's popcorn. Exactly. She said she loved me. Well, it was my fault she picked me to get all wet brain over. Well, I'd say she certainly had marvelous judgment, Albert, if not particularly good taste. <laughs> particularly good taste. <laughs> a boy in his dog can go walking. A boy and his dog sometimes talk to each other. A boy and a dog can be happy sitting out in the woods on a log, but a dog knows his boy can go wrong. A boy and his dog can go fishing. A boy can teach a dog to bring a dish in when he's hungry. Happy sitting out in the woods on a log, but a dog knows his boy can go wrong. So that was A Boy and His Dog. We made it. Yes. I apologize, Paul, but I do think there was some value in it. I think so, too. I mean, it's it's looking at it as both what it depicts of the sort of dystopian apocalypse but also the world of 1975 yeah. and the mentality of the people who actually made the film in the first place, uh, yeah. more so than a lot of these more sort of polished studio productions. I mean, I think the story might be worth reading. It's a short story. Yeah, it's uh, 24 pages or something. It is a classic. It's constantly reprinted. I mean, it is interesting to see it in contrast to the movie in good ways and in bad ways. Okay, well, but thanks for listening anyway. A reminder that this podcast and everything on Loading Ready Run is supported by our Patreon at patreon.com slash loadingreadyrun. Our theme music 
is by Bradley Rains, and all the interstitial segments, including the new one just for this episode, uh, were provided by Kiara Kant. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, rate, or review it on iTunes, and you can also give us feedback on our forum at loadingreadyrun.com slash forum. We will talk to you later. Talk to you later, and may the odds forever favor the bold. Okay, yes. Bye-bye. Ci vediamo! <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>